Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about planets in and outside of our solar system. So what exactly makes a planet a planet, or a dwarf planet for that matter, and how can we evaluate them? Are there any dwarf planets lurking in our solar system that we've potentially overlooked? Plus, we find out about extra criteria that we might need to consider whether or not an exoplanet is in the Goldilocks zone. All this in this week and more as we talk about exoplanets and planets. Now, it used to be that for many years it was quite clear what a planet was, and the ability of our telescopes to see and observe planets slowly, slowly improved and increased, and things went from being stars to being labelled as planets, and then more and more refined as we got better and better technology to enable us to see and detect more planets. And we sort of settled on in the mid-20th century around, of course, nine planets that you're probably familiar with. But this isn't necessarily a great definition, because as our technology improved even further, we could actually identify that there's way more than nine. And trying to classify them and separate them is very, very difficult. And this bothered the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, and in a General Assembly meeting in August 2006, they came up with a, a really defined criteria for explaining what is and what is not a planet. Now, the first thing is they did they divided into three categories, three groups, a planet, a dwarf planet, and all other objects, basically otherwise known as small solar system bodies. Now, a planet is a celestial body that orbits the sun, has sufficient mass for its self-gravity to sort of condense it and make it smooth. This is referred to as hydrostatic equilibrium. Basically means it's round. And C, it's cleared the neighborhood around its orbit, which means that all other objects around it have been swept aside or trapped in its orbit. Now, a dwarf planet, on the other hand, is the same as a planet except it hasn't cleared its neighbourhood around it. There's still chunks floating around, and it's not a moon, it's not a satellite. So that distinction means that it doesn't have enough mass to sweep a clean path of it in its around its general area, which is sort of the tipping point between a planet and a dwarf planet. And then everything else that doesn't satisfy those criteria is categorised as a small solar system body. And the main one they normally fail out on is the hydrostatic equilibrium. Basically, once an object gets large enough, the gravitational forces are sufficient to constrict itself into a round shape, which means that you don't end up looking like a potato with all these odd deformities and craters and weird lumps and things all over it. It actually becomes more smooth, circular and round. And that is what makes it a planet or a dwarf planet and not just an asteroid or other small solar system body. So that's how they define the rules. And the fact that You have to clear the area of your orbit is what makes Pluto not in fact a planet, but a dwarf planet. Now, the list of dwarf planets at the moment is contested, but more or less scientists are agreed on a few. And that is, of course, Ceres, which is in the asteroid belt. Pluto, which, as you know, is a trans-Nestunian object way out in the far reaches of the solar system. And Eris. But there's a few more out there that we can consider as well. We've talked about them a few times on this show, like Haumea and Makemake. And of course, if you expand some of the criteria a bit further, you could get to including Qua, Sedna, Orcus, and 2007 OR10, otherwise known as Gongong. Now that one, some of those later ones are awaiting more and more data to try and classify them. And realistically, what we're trying to classify is the shape, as well as its ability to clear out its area. Now, 
For those, you need more observations and more data, which for such small objects can be quite difficult, which is why some of these objects are in the contested category. Now, for example, sometimes you can get kicked off the dwarf planets list. Take Vesta. Now, Vesta was another massive body in the asteroid belt, like Ceres, and it was thought to be roughly spherical, but we got more and more detailed images of it. And especially after two large crater impacts were seen, it lost its equilibrium round shape and started to becoming more potato-like. So it actually got kicked off the list. And sometimes dwarf planets fail out of a criteria because they get captured. And that's what exactly what we believe has happened to the former dwarf planet Triton. It used to be a massive trans-Newtonian oblect like Eris or Pluto, but it got captured by the orbit of Neptune as it swept into its path too close, which also explains why Triton has a retrograde or opposite direction orbit around Neptune, then Neptune's other moons. In any case, we're always trying to expand our understanding of all the various dwarf planets and objects in our solar system. And recently, some researchers using the European Space Telescope have been further refining our understanding of what classifies as a dwarf planet and what might join that elusive list of planets and dwarf planets in our solar system. Now, researchers using the European Space Agency's SPHERE instrument at the Very Large Telescope, the VLT, have been studying the large asteroid Hagea. And this team of researchers have recently published their findings in the journal Nature. It's a very wide-ranging team, as most European Space Agency projects are, with collaborators coming from all over Europe and some from outside Europe as well. Now, what they were studying was Hagea, which could be considered the fourth largest object in the asteroid belt after Ceres, Vesta and Pallas. Now we talked earlier about Vesta and how it was kicked off the list of being a dwarf planet for not meeting the roundness criteria. But what these researchers have discovered that what Vesta, while it might have been kicked off as we got more data about its shape, if you looked at Hegea a lot more closely using the Very Large Telescope, then you might just be able to classify that instead as a dwarf planet. Now. It immediately satisfies three of the main requirements to be a dwarf planet. That is, it orbits around the sun, tick, it's not a moon, tick, and unlike a planet, it hasn't cleared out its neighbourhood. There's junk still lying around. And that all means it would be classified as a dwarf planet, as long as it has enough mass for its own gravity to pull it into that telltale round shape of a planet, what separates a planet from everything else, like a large asteroid. So this requirement for a dwarf planet is all that was missing and that's what they were using the sphere instrument on the very large telescope to discover now the very large telescope is one of the most powerful imaging systems in the world and that's exactly the kind of instrument you need to figure out if something is round or not and with this they've been able to take really intricate photos of Hegea and they've also been able to use sphere to constrain and put a number on the size or diameter of Hegea as well now, what they've observed is that Hegea is actually pretty round in shape, and its diameter is around 430 kilometers in size. Now, Pluto, for comparison, is a diameter close to 2,400 kilometers, and Ceres, the largest object in the asteroid belt, is around 950 kilometers. So, Hegea is much smaller, about half the size of Ceres. 
but despite all of that, it lacks any large impact craters that you'd normally expect to see on the surface, which is quite fascinating to think of. Because there was expected, like with Vesta, that there'd be several of these large impact basins. These impact basins would deform and rearrange the shape, meaning it wasn't smooth. But they scanned and looked at 95% of the planet, and they could really only identify two unambiguous craters. And they were all would have been relatively small in size. So they started to investigate further, and then using numerical simulations based on their data, they could actually fully comprehend the shape and what, how it managed to clear out roughly a little bit of the area to avoid any large collisions with much larger objects that would have radically changed the shape of the dwarf planet. Now, what they estimate is around 2 billion years ago, there would have been a pretty large violent impact, and that would have shattered a much larger object in the asteroid belt and left behind some pieces. And those pieces are believed to be what formed Hegea and gave it its round shape with thousands of companion asteroids hanging around. And they think that this happened somewhere in the last three to four billion years, but they think roughly around two billion years ago as well, in specifically, that we would have seen the formation of Hegea. And all of this modeling and analysis is only possible to getting really good pictures and images using the very large telescope and the sphere instrument. And the pictures itself don't look fantastic, but then you have to remember that we're trying to image an object that's relatively small in the middle of the asteroid belt. And it's amazing that we could just even find it. But they do show that we could have another dwarf planet in our solar system, because it is pretty round, and it does meet all the criteria. But of course, we wait for further data, and we might find even more objects like this lurking somewhere in our solar system. Because our solar system, even though you may think it's small, is still quite large and filled with a wide variety of objects. There's some great research by the European Southern Observatory, the European Space Agency, and published in the journal Nature Astronomy. One of the common terms we talk about when we talk about planets or even exoplanets is the idea of the Goldilocks zone, a region of space that's not too warm and not too hot. Basically, more or less, the area where a planet could exist away from its star that would still be able to have liquid water on its surface. And the Goldilocks zone is a, a nice heuristic for an area where maybe there could be life on another planet. Mars sort of lies on the extent, the far extent of the Goldilocks zone. Venus also gets a bit too close, and Earth is in just right. So if you imagine that in our own solar system and then apply that to extrasolar solar systems with exoplanets around them, this is what most scientists are using to try and study and understand whether a planet may be habitable for some form of life. And there are a couple of solar systems out there that we're actually paying close attention to that we've talked about several times on this show, like Ross, Proxima, and Trappist. Now, these all have a variety of exoplanets around their orbits, which are of great interest to astronomers. But new research from Rice University, published in the journal The Astrophysical Journal, has adding an extra criteria to the Goldilocks zone. 
And this research was led by Rice University graduate student Alison Farish. Now, what they were trying to categorize and understand is space weather. And space weather can have a big role to play. Now, the one thing to remember about Mars is it's theorized that Mars once had liquid water on the surface. But Mars lacks its own strong magnetic field. And that means that water, if it was present, was probably whipped away and evaporated because Mars doesn't have a magnetic field to protect it from solar or interstellar winds bombarding it. Without that strong magnetic field, all those gases just evaporate away and get swept out into the interstellar medium. And that means the water slowly, slowly evaporates up and then off the planet. Whereas on Earth, our strong magnetic field helps keep it contained. Now that's just one example, but there's a lot of space weather effects that would be of potentially damaging impacts to life. For example, large solar flares or any other large pulses of radiation. Now, our Sun and Earth have its own magnetic fields and these interact with each other. And our magnetic field here on Earth does sometimes get bombarded with solar flares which can cause havoc for electrical lines and telecommunication satellites. But for the most part, it doesn't actually lead to too much damage on Earth. Now, if you don't have a strong magnetic field, then that exposes you to a lot of risk. Because that means that any of this large space weather from the own star, or maybe from another star in a nearby system, can correct all kinds of havoc. And based on this, Alison Farish and her team were trying to find if they could extend the category for a habitable zone to include whether or not a planet actually has sufficient magnetic sphere to protect itself, or if it's in the right area around a star to sort of benefit and leech off the magnetic sphere of the orbiting star. And that's what they've defined as this extended magnetic field zone of the star. Now, without having an extended magnetic field emanating from the star, it's possible that a planet, many of these planets that they're looking at around Trappist, for example, could lose its atmosphere in as little as 100 million years. If they don't have their own strong magnetic field and they're not getting shielded from the magnetic field of their star that they're orbiting, well, it means that they don't get any protection. Think about it another way, like a object trailing in the wake of another object moving in front of it. For example, take cyclists. They have one in the pack in the group who rides the front and the others drop into the slipstream and they get the advantage of being behind that and have to work less hard. Now, the magnetic field of a star helps keep radiation at bay, particularly some things like ultraviolet and X-ray emissions, as well as particle emissions, not just from that star itself, but other stars around it. And without the electromagnetic field of the star sort of shielding the planet a little bit, then it can be exposed to all kinds of nasty stuff. And some of these exoplanets are actually lying just outside that boundary line from the star. Now, this is a new area and a new concept that's not really fully defined yet, but it's being put forward in this paper in the Astrophysical Journal. And basically, it's not trying to rain on the parade of saying that these new exoplanets aren't habitable, but we need to consider whether or not protective magnetic fields exist and how they could interact with the space weather from the star and what that might mean for life on that planet or the development of a sustained atmosphere. Now, this is some new research, and it's interesting to see some ideas putting put forward to further understand and explore possibility of life across the universe and what space weather and strange interactions with things like magnetic fields could mean for life on other planets across our solar system. This is a great work from Rice University, Alison Farish, 
published in the Astrophysical Journal. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From exoplanets to dwarf planets, this week we looked at rules defining what makes a planet habitable, but also what classifies a dwarf planet and a planet itself. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.